Good evening, everyone. It's good to see you. Smiling, praise the Lord, yes? All right. Doing a smile check. You know, we do sound checks, but we need to do a smile check. I see you, Sarah. All right, praise God. Good to see you. We're going to study this evening, and I know that this is a work night. So I'm going to put an automatic limit on how long I'm going to talk, no matter what. If I'm in mid-sentence, I'm just going to stop? You don't want me to do that? <laughs> Not tonight. <laughs> All right. We'll go as far as we can, and uh, again, I do want to be temperate, um, but tomorrow night we'll definitely spend a little bit more time together, and we're, what we're coming to at the end of this, we're coming to the near the end of these meetings, and we're going to try to put everything together. It's going to be hard to put 28 sermons into one sermon tomorrow, <laughs> but we're going to do our best. <laughs> you know, we've been building and building and building and building, and this is another very important subject that we are covering t tonight. A very important subject that we're covering tonight. Because I'm not smart enough or intelligent enough to communicate the realities of the gospel to you, I'm going to ask, if you don't mind, if you will bow your heads as I kneel and ask the Lord for help. Our Father in heaven, we first and foremost want to thank you for being a gracious, loving, and merciful God. We want to thank you, Father, for getting us here safely, sending angels that excel in strength to protect this place and open our minds to understand your word. Now, Father, as we delve into these passages of Scripture like we never have before, we ask for the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is the only effectual teacher of truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, what we're going to do tonight, we're going to do a verse-by-verse verse study and unpack Revelation chapter 13, particularly verses 11 through 18. Now, I don't believe I'm going to get to 18. I only think I'm going to get to probably verse number 13 or 14 tonight. And then we're going to tie, to tie it all together tomorrow when we deal with Revelation 17. But tonight, we're dealing with Trump's America in prophecy. Now, one do you guys remember where you were when you found out that Donald Trump had won the election? You remember where you were? You remember, huh? You remember? Uh, and I, I remember where I was. I was in the Bronx. I was in Bronx, New York, and I was beginning an evangelistic series there. Now, most of those persons that were coming to those meetings were from uh, the island, and they didn't like Donald, um, the president. And I saw a great, almost like depression, come over the people because he had won. And, you know, me being a student of Bible prophecy and understanding that nothing happens by accident and that all things work after the counsel of God's will, I knew that this man was put in position for a reason. And tonight we're going to delve into it, but before I even deal with a religio-political power, we must have a biblical foundation. Is that Okay. Because I don't want to be guessing at anything. I don't want you to guess at anything. I want to understand from the scripture, what does the Bible say about the United States of America in Bible prophecy and the role that this president and whomever else come, comes into office has to say. So you know Isaiah 42 verse 9. This is going to be a review, but let's go and look at our Bibles. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 9. 
Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 9, the Bible says, Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth, I, what's it say? I tell you of them. So God is taking almost like a declarative statement in regards to himself that he's not going to do anything unless he communicates the reality of his movements to his people, okay? Amos chapter 3 and go to verse number 7. Amos chapter 3 and verse number 7. Amos chapter 3 and verse number 7. The Bible says, surely the Lord God will do a few things. Only a few of you there. I just want to make sure. Surely the Lord God will do how much, my friends? Nothing. nothing. Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. So every movement that God does is there is no surprise to those who are following after God's word, who are seeking his face on a continual basis. There's no surprise there. God has an intent and a desire to share his heart with his friends, especially in these last days. Let's go to one other verse, John chapter 13, John chapter 13 and verse 19. John chapter 13 and verse number 19. And notice what the Bible says in John 13 and verse 19. These words are in red. That means Jesus himself is speaking. The Bible says, Now I tell you before it come, that when it is come to pass, ye may believe that I am he. So let's, let's pause for a moment. Anytime I'm studying prophecy, it is not for the sake of causing you to be afraid so you can run and hide in some mountain somewhere. That's not why we do prophecy. We don't do prophecy so that I can in, in get you all energized for five months and then you go back to being what you were before. The purpose and intent of prophecy is to reveal God's heart and reveal God's intent in his movements for the salvation of his children. Does everybody understand that? That's the purpose of prophecy. So you won't get up, I won't get up here and be like, Jesus is coming tomorrow. It's not going to happen. Although that would be great. Wouldn't that be great? My heart would be overjoyed if that were to transpire. But that is not the intent of Bible prophecy. It is the revelation of God's heart and his plans to his children so that we can be in concert and fellowship and lockstep with him as he comes to finish his work. Now we're going to start in Revelation chapter 13. I want you to look at verse number 11. We're going to break it down piece by piece. We're going to take our time with it. And like I said, we'll go as far as we can, and then I will respect that you have to work tomorrow. Revelation chapter 13, and we're beginning, I mean, beginning at verse 11. The Bible says, And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a dragon, I mean, like a lamb, and he spake like what, my friends? A dragon. Very good. So it says another beast. So you guys are observant. We're studying right now. If this is another beast, what other beast is being referred to uh, as another? What was before this one? 
What, what did the first beast come out of? The sea. So we have a beast that comes out of the sea, and we have another beast that's coming up out of the earth. Very good. Stay with me. Every obvious detail is important. Every obvious detail is important. Now, this beast comes up out of the earth. I have termed him and named him the false prophet, but I'll explain to you why in a few moments. So notice this. What is a beast in Bible prophecy? And because we have limited time, I put most everything on the screen. So what is a beast in Bible prophecy? The Bible says, answer, Daniel 7, 17. These great beasts which are four are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. Verse 23, thus he said, the fourth beast shall be the fourth, what, my friends? Kingdom upon the earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. So my simple analysis, based on my observation, is that a beast is equivalent to a kingdom. Is that okay, everybody? A beast is equivalent to a kingdom. So we have a kingdom that's coming up out of the earth, and we have a kingdom that's coming up out of the sea. Question number two, what does the phrase coming up mean? So I looked up the phrase coming up. I don't know Greek. I don't know Hebrew. I know how to look it up. Can everybody do that here? Everybody can look it up. I looked it up on Eastward, and that word came up right there called anabino or baino, which literally means to go up or to rise or to ascend. So I looked for another place where this word was used in the scripture. And it's used in Mark chapter 4, verse 8, and it uses the word spring up. So the Mark 4, 8 says, And other fell on good ground, and did yield fruit that sprang up and increased, and brought forth some thirty, and some sixty, and some a hundred. So simply put, this beast kingdom grows up like a plant it springs up so there are stages in the development of this beast that ascends from the earth all right let's go a little further question number question number three so no actually yeah question number three how does a plant grow mark 428 tells you exactly how it grows and of course you know this already for the earth bringeth forth fruit of herself first the blade then the ear after that the full corn in the ear this is the development of the kingdom or beast power in revelation chapter 13 so again simply put my concise thought is the plant grows in stages therefore this kingdom will develop in stages does everybody follow that the plant grows in stages, therefore this kingdom will develop in stages. Question number four. Well, actually, I will pass that. I will pass that. I want you to watch this video. I'm going to show this video. It's about eight minutes long. Don't go to sleep. But it's important because it begins to describe a kingdom that began to develop in stages. Pay close attention. The modern United States is the most powerful country in human history, with over 800 military bases and 37% of global military spending. The U.S. has become the leader of a vast interconnected global system that has helped usher in an era of unprecedented prosperity and low levels of conflict. 
To understand America's position in the world and why it's so pivotal for world politics as we know it, you have to go back to the country's founding, back to when America wasn't a global power in any sense of the word. During the first 70 years of its existence, the United States expanded in both territory and influence in North America, eventually reaching the Pacific Ocean in a wave of expansionism that resulted in the wholesale slaughter of the indigenous people who populated the continent. But early Americans were deeply divided as to whether the country should expand beyond the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans. This became a major debate after the Civil War, when some leaders, like post-war Secretary of State Seward, argued that America should push to become a global power. Seward succeeded in pushing a plan to purchase Alaska from Russia, but his attempts to buy Greenland and Iceland, as well as annexed territory in the Caribbean, were all blocked by Congress. That's because some Americans, including many on Capitol Hill, had a strong anti-imperialist bent. These people worried about America getting more involved in global politics, as well as having to integrate populations from quote-unquote inferior races. And this opposition implied major checks on the imperialist urge to expand. But something was happening in the late 1800s that would change the debate about American expansionism. The Industrial Revolution produced explosive economic growth, and the bigger U.S. economy required a more centralized state and bureaucracy to manage the growing economy. Power became concentrated in the federal government, making it easier for expansionist presidents, like William McKinley, to unilaterally push American influence abroad. The key turning point came in 1898, when President McKinley dragged the country into war with Spain over Cuba, despite some intense domestic opposition. The rising United States easily defeated the moribund Spanish Empire, acquiring Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippines in the process. Over the next two years, the U.S. would annex the Kingdom of Hawaii, Wake Island, and American Samoa. A few years later, the U.S. took control of the Panama Canal Zone and sent troops to occupy the Dominican Republic. It also purchased the American Virgin Islands. This period of rapid acquisition of far-flung territories put the U.S. on the map as a truly global power. During this time, America also began using its influence to protect its growing commercial and military interests abroad, installing pro-American regimes in places like Nicaragua, and playing a major role in international diplomacy regarding the Western presence in China. World War I showed just how much America's influence had grown. Not only was American intervention a decisive factor in the war's end, but President Wilson attended the Paris Peace Conference which ended the war, and attempted to set the terms of the peace. He spearheaded America's most ambitious foreign policy initiative yet, an international organization called the League of Nations, designed to promote peace and cooperation globally. The League, a wholesale effort to remake global politics, showed just how ambitious American foreign policy had become. Yet isolationism was still a major force in the United States. Congress blocked the United States from joining the League of Nations, dooming Wilson's project. During the Great Depression and the rise of Hitler, the U.S. was much more focused on its own region than on European affairs. Ultimately, America's ever-growing entanglements abroad made it impossible for it to stay out of global affairs entirely. In East Asia, the growing Japanese empire posed a direct threat to American possessions and troops, bringing the United States and Japan into conflict. This culminated in the Pearl Harbor attack, bringing the United States into World War II. World War II would transform America's global presence forever. The United States was the only major power to avoid economic ruin during the war, and it was the sole country equipped with atomic weapons. As such, it was in a unique position to set the terms of the peace, and, with the aim of preventing another war in mind, it took advantage. The most famous example of this is the creation of the United Nations. The UN Charter set up a system of international law prohibiting wars of conquest, like the ones waged by the Nazis and the Japanese. It also served as a forum in which the international community could weigh in on disputes and help resolve them. This way, the Americans hoped, 
Great powers could resolve their differences through compromise and law rather than war. All right, we'll stop there for now. So there's more to this video. I thought it was quite interesting because it takes us from the development of the United States of America and actually brings you all the way down to the president. And the president presently contradicts everything that so far that you've seen here. In fact, they'll show, I, I won't say it, they will show you how he actually himself is putting a stop to globalism in his own way. And I want to show, it's going to show you itself. I want to show you that. Now, the reason why I shared this with you is because we're talking about this power that comes up out of the earth and it grows up like a plant. And if you talk about America in the early stages of its development, you would not think America to be a global power. In fact, it was one of the tiny, tiny, tiny powers on earth. Nobody took any respect to this country at all. It wasn't until 1898 when they had that fight that then it became a global influence, a global power, because they become imperialistic in nature. So in the Bible, what does the earth represent? According to Genesis 1-9, pay close attention. According to Genesis 1-9, the Bible says, and God said, let the waters under heaven be gathered together unto one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land, what did God call the dry land? Earth. And the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. So simply put, earth equals dry land. Everybody follow that? Earth equals dry land. Biblical understanding, simple thought. Now let's go a little further with this. Question number five. So what does seas or waters represent? According to Revelation 17, 15, And he said unto me, The waters that which thou sawest, where the horse sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. There's also another passage in Isaiah 17 and verse 12 that highlights this same idea. Woe to the multitude of many people, which make a noise like the noise of the seas, and to the rushing of nations that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. The nations shall rush like the rushing of many waters, but God shall rebuke them, and they shall flee afar off, and shall be chased as the chaff of the mountains before the wind, and like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. And then we have this passage in Isaiah 57, 20. Notice what it says. The wicked are like the troubled sea. What are the wicked like, my friends? The troubled sea. When it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt, there is no peace saith my God to the wicked. So when we see a beast coming up out of the sea or out of the water, it is a symbol of a kingdom coming up amongst a restless, wicked people. Are you seeing that, my friends? Now, it's interesting. This is my own, my own summation here. So simply put, seawater equals wicked peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Therefore, the dry land would be a not-so-populated area with the depth of wickedness as in the previous area. So wherever there was a lot of people, the dry land is opposite of that vast amount of persons. And it doesn't carry the same weight of wickedness that the previous area had had. Also note, the earth has conditions for things to grow and flourish. You'll find that in Genesis 1, verse 11 and 12. In fact, go there. 
simple observation, but these are things I do on my own reading. So if you look at the earth, what happens with when the earth is, when the dry land is created? Verse 11 says, and God said, let the earth bring forth grass, herb yielding seed, and the fruit yielding fruit after its kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, and the herb yielding seed after its kind, and the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after its kind, and God saw that it was so. So what we have is the beast power coming up out of the earth like a plant growing up. Well, no, in this one's the earth. The beast coming up out of the earth like a plant. And when the beast comes up out of the earth like a plant, it grows. And as it grows, it's opposite of the sea. It's opposite of the vast amount of people. It's opposite of the wickedness that's there. It's growing up in a place separate from all that chaos and confusion. Does everybody follow that? Okay. Let's go a little further. So this beast has two horns. The beast has two horns. Let's read that. Revelation 13. In verse number 11, it says, and he had two horns like a lamb. So the question is, what do the two horns represent? Is there anywhere else in Scripture that highlights two horns? And the answer is yes, there's another place in Scripture that highlights two horns, and I'm going to show it to you right now. It's in the book of Daniel. There's only one other place where it talks about something that has two horns. In Daniel 8, verse 20, the Bible says, the ram which thou sawest, having two horns, are the kings of Media and Persia. Now, I need you to think with me right now. We're in almost in the calculus of Bible prophecy. So when we're talking about a beast, a beast is a what in Bible prophecy? A kingdom. So the ram would be a beast or a kingdom. And in this, it has two horns coming out of the kingdom. These two horns represent two powers in the same kingdom. Does everybody follow that? All right. So there's two horns in the same kingdom, Media and Persia, but they're in the same territory. They're in the same kingdom. So now the question would be, uh, or let's actually put here, Ram is, the Ram is a kingdom that is divided into the Medes and Persian, two kings, two kingdoms. As it was then, so it is in Revelation 13, 11. There are two kingdoms coming out of one. Two kingdoms coming out of one. Now watch. So what is the Lamb of symbol of? I don't even have to read the Bible verse for that. Who, what is the Lamb of symbol of? Jesus. It's a symbol of Christianity. It's a symbol of the Lamb of God. In fact, I'll just put the verses just so you know I'm not lying. Amen. Isaiah 53, 7 says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. John 1, 29, very clear. Then the next day, John see of Jesus coming unto him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. 1 Peter 1, 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now, the reason, before I even go any further, the reason why we're doing this is, my friends, because the Bible explains itself. We're not going to a commentary to explain this. What we do is take a symbol in, Bi in the Bible and we go look for it in the Bible. 
And the Bible says, oh, this is what it means. I say, okay, we'll make that application. Then we'll go look for something else. But I am not making this up, as you can see. Simply put, Jesus is represented as a lamb. And this beast out of the earth has two horns like a lamb, indicating two kingdoms that Christ acknowledges. Are you with me? Two kingdoms that Christ acknowledges. These are two horns like a lamb, two kingdoms that Christ acknowledges. So let's look at Christ. What two kingdoms did Christ acknowledge? In Matthew twenty two twenty one, the Bible says, They say unto him, Caesar's. Then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are whose, my friends? God's. So God is acknowledging two kingdoms, Caesar's kingdom and God's kingdom. I'll say it a different way in a different passage. John 18, 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. So you clearly see that there's a kingdom that God himself has, and there's a kingdom that belongs to the politicians and leaders of this world. And Jesus acknowledges both. He acknowledges both. So here's a simple idea. Christ acknowledges two kingdoms. There's the church kingdom, the heavenly kingdom, the church, and then there's the earthly governments, Caesar's kingdom. So in this one kingdom that comes up out of the earth, there are two powers that Christ acknowledges. One is the church, and the other is the state. Are you following, my friends? One is the church, and the other is the state. So are there any other passages that highlight an outward niceness? <laughs> you can tell I wrote that question myself. An outward niceness, but an inward depravity or viciousness. Remember, he, he looks like a lamb, but speaks like a, a dragon. So let's look at some passages that highlight that idea. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 15, the Bible says, Beware of false prophets, which come to you in what kind of clothing, my friends? Sheep's clothing. That means they look like Christians. They look like they are docile and kind, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. That means they're vicious. An outward niceness, but an inward corruption. In Acts 20, 29, it says, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Again, there's a warning that Jesus gives, and now in Revelation we see a power that looks all kind and fluffy, but at the end, it begins to speak like a dragon. And I'm going to tell you what that means to speak like a dragon in a moment, where the Bible is. I'm not going to tell you. The Bible's going to say it. So I want you to hear this. Listen carefully to this speech. It's going to start off quiet. It's not going to say anything for a few seconds. And then you'll hear JFK start talking in a moment. I believe in an America where the separation of church and state is absolute, where no Catholic prelate would tell the president, should he be Catholic, how to act. And no Protestant minister would tell his parishioners for whom to vote. When no church or church school is granted any public funds or political preference, 
and where no man is denied public office merely because his religion differs from the president who might appoint him or the people who might elect him. I believe in an America that is officially neither Catholic, Protestant, nor Jewish, where no public official either requests or accepts instructions on public policy from the Pope, the National Council of Churches, or any other ecclesiastical source, where no religious body seeks to impose its will, directly or indirectly, upon the general populace or the public acts of its officials, and where religious liberty is so indivisible that an act against one church is treated as an act against all. All right, so he went down to Texas. The reason why he did that, because they were, they were a Protestant country at the time, and they were afraid that if he came into office that he would implement, some of you are old enough to know what was going on back then. But they were afraid that he was going to implement, you know, the Catholic concepts. And he went down and said, look, no, I'm not going to do that. I believe in an absolute separation of church and state. And he went on, and you heard his speech just now. So that president said that, but this one is one of my favorites. <laughs> he says the opposite. Notice what he says. Mr. President, final question. Yes, sir. You said famously, when you looked into Vladimir Putin's eyes, you saw his soul. Yeah. When you look into Benedict XVI's eyes, what do you see? God. Good way to end the interview. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. My pleasure. Yes, sir. Thank you. You guys heard that? Now just think for a moment. If, you, if you're a human being and you get a private audience with God and God speaks, you think you want to obey what he says? Wouldn't you obey what he says? Yeah. If God speaks, you're going to do what he says. Notice this. This is uh, from the White House Press, March, 20, March 22nd, 2001. It says, the best way to honor Pope John Paul II, truly one of the great men, is to take his teaching seriously, is to listen to his words and put his words and teachings into actions here in America. This is a challenge we must accept. One president goes down to Texas and says, no, there's an absolute separation of church and state. Another one says he's God, and whatever he says to do, we should implement in our country. Are you guys paying attention? Let's go a little further. So who is the dragon? Revelation 12, 7 through 9 tells us that the dragon is the devil and Satan. But the devil and Satan does not come out and just show up in your face. That's not how he does things. The devil works through mediums, whether it be people or entities or powers, or churches, it doesn't matter, but he works through those, those entities. Now, what does, a dra or what does the dragon speak? Go to John 8, verse 44. John 8 and verse 44. John 8 and verse 44. Notice what this says. So, so we know the devil is, is the dragon and Satan. It says, ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your fathers ye will do. He was a, what's it say, my friends? He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar, and he is the father of it. So when the dragon speaks, he speaks lies. 
And when he speaks lies, my friends, we know that when someone speaks lies, it's actually murder. It's actually a, a form of persecution. It is, it is and, uh, I don't want to go here, but it is as bad as someone coming to chop your head off with an actual machete. When people gossip and lie and talk behind people's back, it is one of the worst, the worst things. It's, it's funny, you know, I'll say something to somebody. You ever played that gossip, that gossip chain before? Somebody whisper in somebody's ear, and then somebody else whisper and whisper in the same group, in the same room, and then when it's all done, after going through 20 people, you might have said, the, the taco was great. It comes back, Andre loves lizards. Like, how did that come out? I mean, that's how it goes. The conversation is twisted when gossip is beginning to go, and then it just turns out to be Andre ate children when he was a boy. You know, like, like where did that come from? Well, that's how gossip goes. So simply put, this nation starts looking initially like it's Christian, but in the end, it will speak like a dragon. It will have qualities of a dragon. It will speak lies. Now, let me, let me pause for a second. <laughs> I have literally, my daughter knows and my wife knows, I, I, I watch from time to time the political, you know, news that comes on. I've come to the point where I can't stand it. <laughs> Anybody else come to that, that point? Yeah. Right, yeah, it's like you turn it on and everybody's lying. And you don't, it's like, are you, are you, and, I, and then my mind's like, he just lied boldface right there. How is he still a, how? What happened? What? Like, I lose my breath. I can't understand what's going on. And people are paid to do this. And people know that, like, they know the man just lied. Like, he just lied. And he still keeps his job. I'm confused. And don't think I'm talking about the person you think I'm talking about. I'm talking about the other person that you think I'm not talking about. Just for a side note. Dragon is mentioned 13 times in the book of Revelation. That 13 is an occult number, just so you know. So Revelation 13, 12. Now, that was all verse 1. Yeah, that was only one verse we did, guys. Do you guys see that? Now, let me tell you something. The way I did that study, literally everybody in this room can do the same thing. You don't have to go to seminary and do that. You just take your time, verse by verse. What does dragon mean? Look it all up. What does coming up mean? Look it up. What does water mean? Look it up. Everybody in this room can do that. Everybody. I see everybody over the age of 12 in here. Amen. Okay? You're 12, you're 12 right? I just want to make sure. Or is he 11? Either way it goes. You can read. Everybody can do that. And I'm saying that because there's going to come a point when this freedom that we have like this won't be like this. You have to own what you believe yourself. You can't, you can't depend on the preacher or the teacher. You got you to gotta go dig. And to me, in this moment in time, and this little commercial, in this moment in time that we're doing this like this, this is a blessing, right? To me, this is a blessing. This is a privilege that we get to have, and we need to take advantage of it. But you have been called, particularly those of you still coming to these meetings, you have been called with a particular responsibility now with the knowledge that you have. You can't sit on this. So let's go a little further. That was a commercial. So it says in verse 12, let's read verse 12 because go back to Revelation 13. Let's look at verse 12. 
It says in verse 12, And he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him, and causes the earth and them that which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. So what are all the powers of the first beast? That's what I wanted to know. So I, I just looked it up. The answer is Revelation 13:5, And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue 40 and two months. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to do what to them, my friends? Overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. So the power that's given to this beast is, he speaks crazy, of course. He'll pass some laws. I'll show you that in a moment. And also he has the power to persecute the saints. The freedoms that we recognize right now in our country are precious but if you know anything about what's happened to the guy, the baker, that wanted to just make a cake, and then somebody came in and wanted to make it for the gay marriage thing, and then he's like, well, respectfully, I don't do that, and then he gets sued and lost his whole business. That mentality, that mentality is permeating our society, where you can barely say what I just said without being considered hate speech. Are you, are you following the idea? Okay, stay with me now. So who gave these powers to the first beast? The answer is in the text. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. Next question. What does the second beast exercise? All the power of the first beast. So the beast that comes out of the earth exercises the same powers that the previous beast Exercise. That's what it says. The text says that. Question 15. What does the second beast cause to happen? Notice Revelation 13, 12. And he exercised all the power of the first beast before him and causeth. That means he forces the earth and them that dwell therein to worship what, my friends? The first beast whose deadly wound was healed. So we know that the second beast will cause everyone to worship the first beast. Now, Romans 6.16 says, Know ye not that to whom you yield yourself servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. So your obedience is an indication of your worship. Are you hearing what I'm saying? So worship is not simply I come and I sing songs. I hold my hands up and say hallelujah. Obedience is, the fourth commandment says, the seventh day is the Sabbath. So now I say, I know what my tradition has been. I know what my habit has been. But now I'm entering into my relationship with the Most High. I will keep the Sabbath day holy, not because I'm earning my salvation. We already, we already talked about that. But it's a symbol and a sign of what God has worked in us already. Are you hearing what I'm saying? I'm resting in the Most High. So worship is demonstrated by obedience. So, how was the first beast wounded? Here's the answer. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. So the first beast received a deadly wound, and he, re he received it from a sword. Now, what does the sword mean? 
in Bible prophecy. Now, somebody says, well, the sword represents the Bible. Context dictates interpretation. I'll say it again. Context dictates interpretation. So I can't just say, okay, stars represent angels, and then every time I see a star, it represents angels. No, context dictates interpretation. So what does the sword represent in this case? Romans 13, 4. For he is the minister of God, speaking of the state power, the state power. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword, how my friends? In vain. So the state is in essence the one that bears a sword, a means of correcting those who step outside the, the way that they're supposed to go. So in our day, we wouldn't call it a sword, we'll call it a gun. Do you understand the idea? In other words, they have the ability and force to be able to dictate and tell you, you're breaking the law, you're not breaking the law. If you don't get it together, we're taking you to jail. Does it, you follow that? So there is an, under, uh, an idea that I want you to get, and we're going to see it in Daniel 11.31. Go to Daniel 11.31 very quickly. There's something unique about the first beast power that I want you to make sure you lock in your mind. Daniel 11.31, and we are actually probably going to end up doing a whole Daniel class here shortly. But in Daniel 11.31, the Bible says, and this is referencing the same power, just in a different way. It says, and arms shall stand on his part and shall pollute the sanctuary of strength. So arms, when I say arms, just when I do that, when I say arms, just imagine my little biceps. So arms <laughs> shall stand on his part. In other words, there's going to be strength added to this power, not because the, power, the, 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 the church does not have any power in and of itself. If it's disconnected from God. So the church has to go to the state for strength. Okay? So arms, the military strength, shall stand on his part. Something else. I want to show, show you something else. Go with me to uh, Revelation 13. To, or you in Daniel. Stay in Daniel. Go to Daniel 8.24. Go to Daniel 8.24. Look at this one. In Daniel 8.24, the Bible says, and his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. What does that mean? So it's somebody else's power, right? So again, it's talking about, the, in the context of what we're talking about, it's the same power we're talking about, and it's saying that it's mighty, but it's not by his own mighty. It's, it's connected to a state power. So the strength of the church, the first beast, came when it was connected to the state. Everybody follow that? So when it says, he that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Remember I told you there were 50 to 100 million Christians killed during the 1,260 years of persecution? That happened because the, the church told the kings of the earth, go kill those Christians. They called them crusades. 
There were times of great persecution, even against the Muslims. They, they used crusades to go slay those persons. But 50 to 100 million Christians were killed during that time frame. The sword was used against the faithful. But it just said, if you kill with the sword, you must be killed with it. All right. So the wound then would be this. The first beast receives power of or from the civil authorities. And I got to get rid of that word of. For this first beast, the papacy, we've already talked about, depends on the military strength of the civil power. And this power ends up turning on the papacy, causing it to receive a deadly wound. In other words, there was a separation of church and, very good, a separation of church and state. So my friends, uh, tomorrow I have some very powerful clips to show you. And when I show them to you, you're going to understand the relevance of what I'm saying. Because the wound is not yet healed. The Bible says the whole world is going to wonder after the beast when the wound is healed. But I'm going to show you tomorrow that the wound is nearly healed. I mean, the calluses are, uh, the, you know how you get those scabs? You, you don't scratch them off too early because they still got to heal up underneath. Right now, the scabs are just over the wound. All, all we have to do right now, all I got to do is start plucking it off. <laughs> That's where we're at right now because the wound is about to be fully healed um, very, very shortly. And that means if it's healed, that means there has to be a union of church and church and state. For what reasons does God alone deserve worship? Let me put them here. Revelation 4, 11. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. And this is interesting because this Revelation 4.11 goes very well with Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. Because it says to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Why? Because remember, he was the creator. He's the creator. That's why he alone deserves worship. No man, no woman, no boy, no girl, no mom, no dad deserves any worship. Only our creator. Amen? Revelation 5, 9 says, and they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood, out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. So two reasons. A, because he's our creator, and B, because he's our redeemer. Are you, are you following that, my friends? This goes very well with uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. It talks about keeping the Sabbath. Why? Because I am the one that has redeemed you and brought you out of Egypt. Very interesting. Two reasons to worship God. He's the creator and he's the redeemer. Those are the two reasons. So let's see here. Revelation 13. All right, let's read Revelation 13, 13. We're doing good. We've been talking for 37 minutes and we're, we're all right. You guys okay? All right. Are you ready to let me, you ready for me to let you go? Okay. Somebody said yes. Did I hear that? No. Revelation 13 and verse 13. Watch what it says. It says, and he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. Now, what does this mean? So here's the uh, biblical stories of fire coming down from heaven. Anybody recognize this first story? 
What's the first story there you see on the screen? You s- Job. Okay, yeah, Job. Definitely Job had fire come down from heaven. You said who else? Elijah. All right. So those are, those are a couple of stories there. Does the scripture say great wonder or great wonders? Very good. Because it only makes mention of the fire coming down from heaven, and then it says wonders, plural, which indicates it's not just fire from heaven, but it's a, it's a symbol of something more. Okay, keep that in mind. So he doeth great wonders, so that he make a fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. So what other places in scripture talk about fire from heaven? First Kings chapter 18, verse 38 says, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Now, there are other verses. I put a whole bunch of other verses there. But this one in particular is talking about Elijah, fire coming down from heaven. The results of fire coming down from heaven more often than not result in a revival. Okay? More often than not, the result in a revival, in, in, a, in a biblical sense, there is supposed to be a good revival. But we know that this beast that comes out of the earth is not on God's side. So we see that it will represent a false revival that will begin to take place. A false enthusiasm, a false coming together and say, we need to come back to God. Now, mind you, my friends, in the last days, the deceptions of the enemy are not going to be satanic worship versus godly worship. The deception is going to be both look like godly worship. Are you following what I'm saying? So they're both going to look like they're Christian. They're both going to name the name of Jesus. They're both going to say we need to love each other. They're both going to say, every guy's going to say the same thing until they say we need to keep the commandments of God. It's going to come down to all that, and then it's going to say the commandments of God, and then it's going to say worship, worship, worship the beast. Now, mind you, my friend, let me just ask you right now. If somebody came to you and said, here's a golden statue, bow down and worship it. Anybody going to do that in here? No. Nobody in this room is going to do that. Anybody says, here's the image to the beast. Please, bow down and worship. Anybody in here? No one's going to do that. No one's going to do that. What it is, this is all spiritual, and pay attention. The first beast, because it was not connected to heaven, decided to connect with the kings of the earth and try to enforce its rules and dogmas through the nations of the earth. That was the first beast. So the second beast says, let's make an image to the first beast. You'll see in a moment. So here's my comment. This is my personal comment. Fire falls from heaven in recognition of God's approval in the the biblical text. All those texts you look them up, they're normally God's approval or God is about to execute judgment on that which is not legit. In favor, thus igniting revival, reformation, or execution of judgment. Even when God sends fire from heaven to execute judgment, it is in favor of the righteous who are being persecuted. Okay? Are you with me? Okay. We have seven more questions to go. So what are the wonders and miracles directly connected with? In Revelation chapter 16, 13 and 14, it says, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs 
come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working what, my friends? So this passage is directly connected to Revelation 13. Which go forth into the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. So the intent of these unclean spirits is to gather the kings of the earth to come together and ultimately fight against God. Now, these wonders and miracles are designed to deceive and gather souls in rebellion against the Most High. Please keep that in mind. Now, I'm going to give you, um, what's the, what is the word I'm looking for? A pattern. I found a pattern. Go with me to the book of Deuteronomy. Yes, Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. Hold your hand there, and also hold your finger in Revelation 13. Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 5. We're going to read this passage first. And I thought this was so beautiful because sometimes there are assumptions made or we assume we understand something and then we don't have a biblical basis for it. We kind of just read it somewhere and we just think it's right. But this is actually awesome. So pay attention. Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5 says, If there rise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and giveth thee a sign or a wonder. Pay attention now. And the sign or the wonder come to pass. Whereof he spake unto thee, saying, Let us go after other gods which thou hast not known, and let us serve them. Thou shalt not hearken unto the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God, what's to say, my friends? He's proving you. He's testing you. Pay attention. This is the first time I really saw it outside of what I perceived in Revelation 13. So God allows this false prophet to come in the midst. And let's say he does a miracle. He says, he lets fire come down. You're like, whoa, that's amazing. Fire came down from heaven. He must be a man of God. And then he says, follow me. We have, uh, this, is the, this is the God you need to serve. And he, he takes you over here. So the, the, the design of it is the miracle is to help you gain confidence in that person. Everybody follow that? follow that? The miracle is to get you to gain confidence. Once he gains your confidence, then he says, come over here. There's, here's a God that you, the Bible says, it said right here, when that happens, it says, verse 3, thou shalt not hearken unto the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God Prove of you. He te he's testing you to know whether ye love the Lord your God with what? All your what? Heart and with all your what? Ye shall walk after the Lord your God and, and fear him and do what else? Keep his what? Commandments and obey his voice and ye shall serve him and cleave unto him. Now, the reason why this is important, now the next part says that the false prophet is put to death. The reason why this is important, because understand the sequence. The sequence goes like this. The beast from the earth and the false prophet are the same. The beast from the earth has wonders and miracles, 
and the false prophet in Deuteronomy 13 has signs and wonders. You'll see that it does it to gain the confidence of the people. In Revelation 13, it says, let's make an image to the beasts. In Deuteronomy 13, it says, let's follow after other gods. Now, this in 13 says, I do this to prove you or to test you. In Revelation 13, it is the final test. Listen to me, friends. When I begin to really think about what I'm saying to you, like sometimes I preach things that I know them, you know, like it's in my head. But what I'm saying to you right now is actually like Noah standing up and says it's going to be a flood. It's, it's in the same vein. But this is the end. <laughs> like either it's real or it's not. This is the last test for all of humanity. Either you accept the mark, the beast in his image, or the number of his name, or you follow God. You're obedient to what the word says to do. It is our test. It is our test. And it's coming to prove you to see whether or not you fear God, whether or not you will obey his commandments, or are you going to follow the false prophet? All right, so I have a couple of things here. Now, this is uh, from a, a book talking about frogs and how people or the, super, the, the spiritualists have seen frogs in the past. So in the parts of Appalachia, it is believed that if you hear a frog croaking exactly at midnight, it means rain is on the way. However, in some societies, it's just the opposite. Frogs croaking during the day indicate coming storms. So frogs, in a, in a way, have to do with weather. That's how the spiritualists see it, or the superstitious. There's an old British legend that, that carrying a dead frog in a pouch around your neck will prevent epileptic seizures. In some rural areas, it's just the frog's liver that gets dried and worn. So it has something to do with healing. Live frogs appear in a number of folk cures. It is believed that putting a live frog in your mouth will cure thrush. And that swallowing live frogs, presumably small ones, can cure whooping cough and tuberculosis. Please note that these are not medical missionary cures that we're offering here. <laughs> Rubbing a live frog or toad on a wart will cure the wart, but only if you impale the frog on a tree and let him die. So frogs have to do with weather, and in some people's mind, frogs have to do with healing. Still others, some cultures believe that a frog coming into your house brings good luck. Others say it's bad luck. The Zeus of tribe says that a frog in your house might be carrying a spell or a curse. Either way, it's usually considered a bad idea to kill a frog. The Maori people believe that killing a frog can bring floods and heavy rains, and some African tribes say that the death of a frog will bring a drought. For the ancient Egyptians, the frog-headed goddess Hecht was a symbol of fertility and birth. If you wish to conceive, touch a frog. The association of the frog with fertility has its root in science each, in science. each year. When the Nile River flooded its banks, the frogs were everywhere. The annual flooding of the delta meant rich soil, strong crops. So the croaking of millions of frogs may well have been an indicator that farms would have an abundant season. Interesting. It has financial implications. Unclean spirits like frogs. Just a thought. Now, make sure the volume is low. The music is going to be bad. Um, so this is a church... I don't know if you're going to be able to hear what he says. If it gets too bad, I'm just going to turn it off. We're going to count three. We're going to release 
little bit longer. So what they're experiencing right there is spiritualism. In their church, it started to ring. Inside the church. They were jumping up and down, screaming, banging the drums, whatever they're doing. And inside the church, it started raining. Watch this one. This one's not, I mean, it's, 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 it's not as loud. But it's an interesting story. Pay attention. A small church in the heart of San Juan, Puerto Rico, has reported the appearance of thousands of gemstones in its sanctuary. Where are these stones coming from? Are they real? And why are they appearing at all? As remarkable as these events may sound, the story hasn't been featured in any significant news coverage. And indeed, aside from a few Christian media outlets, no one seems to be giving these incredible events any notice at all. The pastor of this church is Dennis Rojas a man with a rather eventful background. When I was 16 years old, I received Christ as my personal and exclusive savior. I lived 12 years as a homosexual. I was a professional transvestite. But today I would like to thank God for the liberation and the transformation that he has done in my life through this 32 years that I have served the Lord. One of the reasons Pastor Dennis believes these chimps are supernaturally appearing is that this church has dedicated itself to the focused worship and praise of God. These gems began appearing three years ago when Dennis became the pastor of the House of Restoration and Mercy. In this three years, we have had supernatural experiences, manifestations like the oil from the Holy Unction, manifestations of gold, silver, sapphires, topaz, emerald, rubies. God has sent the angel of precious stones and we have had manifestations of diamonds. This is really something, you know, it's really a blessing and we're really, it's uh, amazing. I mean, we're, we're amazed all the time. Pastor, he, he always feels like, you know, he's like a, this church has grown with physical healings, supernatural healings, creative miracles in the middle of the congregation, and all of this God has done to glorify His name. All right, we'll pause that. So, you guys saw that? So they have in church, and as they're 
having their drums and their music and it's all loud. The gemstones are falling from the ceiling. Gold dust starts falling from the ceiling. They have their Bible. I didn't let you see that, but their Bible sits on the podium and all of a sudden oil just starts oozing out of the Bible. Just, just oozing out. Unclean spirits like frogs going forth to the earth. Tell me something. We just have sound biblical preaching here. How are you going to compete with something like that? You go to a church and gemstones just fall show up on your on the floor. These ecstatic emotional feelings that people have. My friends, if you're not grounded in the word, you're going to be swept away. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's something more. I'm going to show you one other thing. I think this is it. Yeah. stuff there it is you see that sparkly stuff all right so that's not blowing from any vent that's the men church and this is supposed to be the manifestation of the shekinah glory of god it's not from any vent there's no tricks there's nothing there that's just that it's an apparition so the guy who's the pastor of the church gets up and explains because he wasn't there that day when they were preaching and he gets up and explains what happened? And listen to what he says. Listen to what he says. We've been involved in this, <clears throat> excuse me, this um, outpouring really for 15 years. And actually 16 years now. And we, in, in this journey, we've had the Lord show up and do a, a number of amazing things. One of the prominent things that we've seen in these years is the healing of people's bodies, the deliverance, deliverances from torment, restoration of families, all those kinds of things have been uh, so extraordinary, so amazing. Occasionally we have unusual things happen that we, I, I don't take a service for it, I just don't, I'll make reference and then I leave it alone and that's typically my response to the signs that make you wonder. And uh, it would be about 15 or maybe 14 years. What did he say? The signs that make you what? Wonder. Come on now. Remember, I just showed you false prophets, signs, and wonders. He literally gets up there and says, well, these are just evidence of the signs that make you wonder. You go, really? What else? Watch what else he says. Years ago, somewhere in that area, 14 years ago probably, the feathers started just appearing and falling in meetings. And then they started falling in our homes and in restaurants and things like that, just unusual things. You know, there are signs that make you wonder. There are, there, people say, where's that in the Bible? Well, he said he'd cover you with his feathers. <laughs> yeah, well, that's not literal, and that's what I thought. That's what I thought. I thought it wasn't literal. <laughs> it also says uh, there's healing in his wings. Should make somebody happy. But things like that happen. We'll have wind that will gust of wind that I'll get hit with. And I mean, not imaginary things, you know. 
people get weird, and I, I understand they want something, they want something supernatural bad, so bad they start imagining things, and I understand that problem will probably always be with us. But that is no reason to discount what he does do. <clears throat> and uh, we've had gold dust appear in people's hands for years. We, I don't ever talk about it, but frequently during worship, we actually had it today. Benny and I both saw gold will start falling during worship. This time I think it started falling during our prayer time. And we'll just see, just drop like rain. And, uh, and I mean, we just, you, you can't invite God into the house and not have something outside of your box happen. He's All right, I don't want to hear too much of that. So, are you guys concerned like me? Like, I, like to, this is not a game. Like, I wish this was just a presentation and I could take your money and be rich. Not so. <laughs> this is a real situation. This, the world is coming to a place where there is deception taking place at a high level and it's coming to a church near you. You must become and continue to be students of the word. You must become and continue to be students of the word. It is high time to awake out of sleep, my friends. It's high, it's high time to quit playing halfway in and halfway out the church. It's time to quit, quit waiting for the pastor to be what you want him to be and be what you're supposed to be. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Because when we come to a place where we take responsibility for our own spirituality, we cannot be deceived. As long as God's word is the foundation of all that we say, think, and do. Amen? All right, we got two more, three more questions. Who had power to give life into the image of the beast? Answer, the beast of the earth. That's what it says. The beast of the earth gives life into the image of the beast in Revelation 13, 11 through 15. So, question number 27. The act of giving life to an image reflects back on what Old Testament story? Genesis chapter 1 and 2, right? The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man becomes what, my friends? A living soul. And man is created in the image of God. In the image of God created he them, male and female. Genesis 1.26, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. Genesis 2, 7 says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a, what's it say? So this is interesting. So when God creates man in his own image, that image then has dominion. It has rulership. And so it is with the beast, beast power giving life into the image. Once he creates that image and breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, that image of the beast has dominion. Are you following, my friends? Okay. Once the image of the beast receives life, what does he proceed to do? Notice what the Bible says. Revelation 13, 5 says, the image of the beast should both speak and cause 
that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Now, what does it mean to speak? That's his legislation. And what does it mean to cause? That is persecution. To speak is to legislate. To cause is to execute by force. All right? So let's back up for a moment. So the beast that comes out of the earth is a a beast that looks like a Christian nation, but at the end begins to speak like a dragon. This beast breathes into the nostrils of an image, and the image reflects the first beast perfectly. What do we mean by that? The first beast was a union of church and And so there will be a union of church and state. Once the union of church and state is there and life is breathed into that image, persecution is is what follows thereafter. So here's my warning to my brothers and sisters in the room. If we are blessed enough and fortunate enough to represent our Lord during that time, we will be persecuted. You won't be able to buy or sell. Your bank accounts will be frozen. You will have difficulty living a normal life. Your friends that you thought you had before won't be there. You say, Brother Andre, you're supposed to be giving me courage. (laughs) It sounds so dark. Here's the courage. Our Lord will be with us in the midst of the fire. Are you hearing what I'm saying? That's the courage. It's better to be with the Lord in the fire than to be in a prairie, fancy house with no Lord. You see, if, this, if our message was one that would just make everybody comfortable, our place would be full. We would have no space for anybody in the whole town to be here. The place would be packed. If I had a seminar, how to become a millionaire in five days, boom, everybody's packed. Everybody be here. How to live righteously for our Lord in the midst of a world that cares nothing about our God? The faithful are here. Amen. Don't worry. The message will swell to a loud cry very shortly. We're going to spend about ten more minutes. We have like father, like son. Seven heads, ten horns. You know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna pass this for now. I'm gonna I'm gonna jump ahead. Our time is running from us, and I want I want to get I want to show you something, in particular. And then I'm gonna leave it alone, and then tomorrow we'll pick it up. So, if you know anything about a little bit of our yes, let's start here. Let's start here. Now, Glenn Beck, he used to be very famous on Fox News. Now he has his own TV network, even though he's struggling financially. He has some interesting things to say. I just want you to hear what he says. You are seeing a a high-stakes game at a level that most people, including me, do not even begin to understand. I believe the Vatican is actively engaged in a very different kind of battle than the one we normally think of. They are in a spiritual battle, but it will be physical as well. They are gearing up for a spiritual battle unlike anything we've seen. They know this is about good and evil, and they are watching even those around the Pope in the Vatican. All right, so what kind of battle did he say they're preparing for? Spiritual and... uh physical. I thought that was an interesting statement. Like, okay, very interesting. Now, I want you to see this. This was a phrase that was repeated over and over again in 2012. Evangelicals respond to the Catholic lawsuit. We are all Catholic now. In other words, we're all coming together. We're all coming together. And then it was said here by Governor Huckabee. When John F. Kennedy said that we are all Berliners, 
Well, in many ways, thanks to President Obama, we are all Catholics now. We are all standing together. You know, growing up a Baptist in the South, I never thought I'd see the day when I would stand in front of several thousand people and say, we're all Catholic. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Pass the offering plate. It's time to get serious. All right, so that was interesting. I wonder why he said that. Listen to what he says. Once the president and the Soroses of the world take care of the Vatican, how hard will it be to pick off the Lutherans or the Mormons or whoever? The Jews, they're starting big. Your evangelical pastor and your evangelical church is a piece of cake. If you knock it off, because all you have to do is start to intimidate, those churches stand alone. Those churches rely on the, the parishioners, the congregants to come and support. You cannot stand alone, and you cannot sit this one out. We are all Catholics now. So now, so now when I begin to see stuff like that, like it's repeated, like it's in the newspaper. I actually have more clips where they all say the same thing. So I say, okay, what are you saying? Why are you saying that? And why are you saying that? And why is it being repeated over and over and over and over and over again? That's the question I ask myself. Why is it being, especially in these news cycles, there's a reason. There's another one, Fox News, we are all Catholics now. Why are they repeating that over and over and over again? Now I want you to hear this. I think this, the spirit of this was interesting. And again, the reason why I'm showing it to you, again, I'm not, a, let me just say this. It's being recorded. I want everybody to hear. I'm not afraid of Catholics. I'm not afraid of Presbyterians, Episcopalians. I'm not, I'm not afraid of Adventists. You know what I'm afraid of? People that don't love Jesus. Because at the end of the day, if a person doesn't love Jesus, then they can say all they want that they love the Lord. But if they don't love the Lord, they're going to turn their back and they're going to stab me in the back. And the person that scares me the most, you know who scares me the most? Me. Me. It's that internal fight that we all have. Don't you have that fight? That's the most scary person. So even though I'm saying to you, I'm showing you what's happening, I don't want you to think, I'm afraid of these people. I'm not. I'm letting you know prophecy is being fulfilled. That's all I'm saying. Prophecy being fulfilled. That means everybody should get on board with Jesus, find your private time with the Lord, make sure that there's nothing in your experience that would hinder you from being faithful to God moment by moment, day by day. We're comfortable right now, friends, but if you just go back a couple hundred years, Christians were being persecuted and prosecuted. That's about to change. Is about to change. So I want you to hear the, the nature. Joining us now, Bill Donahue, president of the Catholic League, and Robert Boston, senior political analyst from the Americans, Americans United for Separation of Church. Oops. Sorry. Sorry. Giving David Duke a, a degree in, in racial politics. It flies in the face of everything that we believe in, and we don't need people who are not Catholic Bill, sticking their nose in where is, they don't belong. Go ahead, Robert. That is offensive. That is just incredibly no, what's offensive, offensive that you, is you equate those two. It's incredibly offensive. Oh. Listen, you don't need to convince me. You need to convince the two-thirds of the members of your own church who don't agree with you. And I know that you have this great view of 
of a Catholic church straight out of the Eisenhower administration where everybody just listens to the bishops and, and listens to you, but those days are long gone. People have moved on. They aren't interested in listening to you anymore. Yeah. They're not even interested in listening to all of these repressive right-wing policies to you, though, that right? you have hooked their church to. Yeah. Ironically, Bill, even though I left the church at age 17, most of them agree with me, according to the is polls, that right? than they do with you. Well, they you don't what? agree with you. I, and what you're seeing is the ground moving beneath your feet, and I know that bothers you. No. I know that disturbs you. Keep talking, Bill. The, the, fewer the, and fewer people are listening. Let him respond, Robert. There's a profound difference between practicing Catholics and non-practicing Catholics. Overwhelmingly practicing Catholics are against Obama getting the honorary degree. And as far as the ground moving, let me tell you something. Boy, you're going to get a reality check. In all the years I've been doing this at the Catholic League for 16 years, I have never seen the bishops collectively as energized as they are right now. What happens on May 17th will happen, but way beyond that. You're going to see the bishops exercising authority, the likes of which will make your, your, your spine crawl. What did he say? So he, he, I think he made a mistake. I don't think he meant to expose how he felt. But he literally said, you're going to see the bishops exercise authority that will make your spine crawl. He's saying that in regards to politics. I think he didn't want, I don't think he meant to do that. Now, th this is an invitation. This is an article that I had when I was in New Canada. I was doing proxy seminar there, and as I was doing the seminar, somebody came and gave me this paper. I put it aside because I wasn't really paying attention, and then I read it. And on the paper, it says, Republicans and Democrats on Capitol Hill have quickly sought to invoke the popular pontiff's devotion to the poor. Francis, who on Thursday marked the first anniversary of his election as a leader of the world's 1.2 billion Catholics, is widely expected to travel to Philadelphia. And so he's been invited at the top says, U.S. Speaker John Boehner on Thursday invited Pope Francis to address joint session of Congress, an unprecedented event. Unprecedented means what? It never happened before. Okay, so then this guy is talking. And I get a bit cheeky here because I challenge my Protestant pastor friends. If there is no more protest, how can there be a Protestant church? Maybe we now we're all Catholics again. <laughs> but we are reformed. We're Catholic in the universal sense. We are not protesting the doctrine of salvation by the Catholic Church. All right, so let me just pause there. So that, that meeting, that meeting there was with Pentecostals, evangelicals. This wasn't a Catholic thing. And the guy gets up there, and he, he's passed away since, but he got up there and he said those words and everyone laughed, but how true they were. No protests. Why is there no protests? Because the Protestants are no protesting anymore. No, there's no protest. We all agree. We've come to an understanding of the doctrine of salvation, have we? Not based on what I saw when I talked to my, my, my Catholic friend and I sat with him and we were talking about salvation and he said he still had to go to purgatory. That's not understanding of salvation the same way. There's only one mediator between God and man, and that's the man Jesus Christ, the righteous. So no, no, we don't agree. And I'm not angry. I'm saddened that people walk around still burdened with their sins. 1.2 billion people, my friends. Add that to another 1.2 billion Muslims. That's 2.4 billion people that have no true knowledge of God. But my friends, that's going to change very soon, by God's grace. 
So Pope Francis is invited to address joint session of Congress. It is a, a pope has visited the United Nations four times, but one has never addressed the House and Senate during a joint session. But there's a reason why, because this country was a Protestant country. In fact, when the papacy sent over a gift to the United States, they took the gift and put it back in the ocean. That's how angry or concerned the nation was because they understood what the union of church and state presented. All right, I'm going to wrap this up here. So there, this is International Day of Peace. Um, the duty of media is to report the good news of the alliance of all the religions, the whole world, and the, to, the wor to the whole world and fulfill peace. Remember Jesus said when they cry for peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as travail upon a woman with child. That's what the Bible says. So this was an interesting article. It says Pope Francis is only leader respected enough to end today's wars. Former Israeli President Shimon Peres, Israeli president, meaning that he's a Jew, right? Asked Pope Francis to head a parallel United Nations. A what? A parallel United Nations called the United Religions? Interesting. To counter religious extremism in the world. And then it goes on to talk about in the past, most wars were motivated by the idea of nationhood. Today, however, wars are excited above all using religion as an excuse. I know this. I think this is, is nothing. All right. You see this? This day was the most historic day in the U.S. history up to that point. I want you to see what happens. Mr. Speaker, the Pope of the Holy See. So this is 2015. I just want you to understand. That had never happened before. It had ne never in U.S. history. Never. And it's not by accident that it didn't happen before. The nations literally said, this man does not represent our teachings of freedom of conscience, freedom of religion, he doesn't represent that, but here they are, everybody, everybody, and these people are a representation of who? Yes! And we as a nation are clapping for our persecution that's about to come. Remember, that's one of the beasts. That's the beast. He's the, he's the first beast. 
But the second beast makes an image to this beast. And I want you to know something, and I'm going to be very, very plain. Tomorrow, you don't want to miss tomorrow. But our Protestant churches, because we are not connected with the Most High, are linking up with government powers to establish righteousness in our country. In fact, we will link with the most vile person just so our agenda can be passed. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. This message is a solemn message. You and I need to gather our children together, our friends together, our spouses, our, and say, let's, let's press together. Jesus is about to come. There's a crisis pressing in on us. We need to get ready. And one of the ways that you get ready, brothers and sisters, is that in the body of Christ, there's nothing between the brothers and sisters. Like that, we got to put stuff away. Like there can be no beef amongst the family. I can't have bad feelings in my thoughts and feelings when I walk into the church and I know that you probably have feelings against me. We sit on opposite sides of the same church. We don't deal. If you have unresolved, if you have unresolved issues with church members, if you know that you've offended a brother or sister or a family member, and you know that there's something in your heart, you're holding a grudge, you haven't forgiven, and you're holding that thing in, you need to let it go. Need to, you need to ask for forgiveness. You need to, ask, you need to ask the Holy Spirit to give you the spirit of forgiveness, the spirit of grace. You need to let it go. Because then when, you're, when we're walking into this crisis, we don't want to be thinking about a whole bunch of stuff. <laughs> we want Jesus to be our center and our focus. So like Luther, as he's standing before the Diet of Worms, he, can, he says, here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. We need to have that same resolve. But we cannot have that resolve if we know we're holding on to the things God said let go of. How many understood what we studied tonight? Can I see your hand? Praise God. Praise God. Let's spend some time in prayer. Our Father in heaven, the weight of the message and the weight of the responsibility of being faithful is greater than what we can bear. However, Father, you have not told us to bear this alone. And surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secrets unto his servants, the prophets. And Father, you have seen fit to reveal what is about to happen to us. And if you have seen fit to do that, Father, that means that you will strengthen us as well. Father, great deception has entered into the world. Great sadness and sorrow and despair and folks are just looking for solutions they're just looking to what they think is best not realizing that by linking up with the state lord they're going to bring persecution upon your people 
I ask, Father, for resolve to be obedient to your word. No matter the consequence. I pray for each one that is set under the sound of my voice this evening, Father, that you will give them wisdom and strength and resolve, Lord, to be faithful to all your instruction, not putting anything aside. And be like good Bereans and go back and study and dig deep to make sure that what was said tonight is true. For if it's true, Father, our salvation is at stake. Father, we pray for our family and our friends. We pray for a spirit of forgiveness. We pray for a spirit of humility, Lord, where we have been wronged and wronged others. Maybe rectify those situations immediately. Father, bring unity amongst the body. There's so much pain, even in the, in the small group that's here, Lord. Bring unity, a bond that the enemy cannot break. And raise us into a holy atmosphere, Father, where your Holy Spirit can truly be demonstrated in our lives. We love you, Lord. And we ask that you teach us to love you more than anything else in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.